Welcome to Hillcrest Chapel Audio. We hope today's message will help you grow. Good morning. How you guys doing? It's the 11 o'clock crowd. You guys doing good? I'm delighted to be here. I'm the very Christian Lindbeck that he has been introducing. It is astonishing for me to be standing up here in front of you today. Uh, I, I can hardly believe it. I said before, I've, I've looked in your windows. I've walked around your campus. That makes me sound like a creeper. It is mildly creepy, but I have prayed about your church and thought about this day for a long time. And the journey arriving at this moment has been long and circuitous. And to be honest with you, uh, this church was first introduced to me about three years ago as a possibility. And over that time, up into the time you actually started a pastoral search, we have been off and on and said no and said yes and entered the process and backed out of the process and gone back into it again because we have been waiting for the moment where we could say God did this. God's timing was in it. Uh, And from my vantage point, uh, this all has those hallmark signs of God's precision orchestration, but it has been a windy path, uh, both for you and for me. Um, I come to you this morning out of 20 years of full-time ministry. I've been a church planter, a pastor, a port chaplain. I came from Northwest Bible College, now Northwest University, through Gordon-Conwell Seminary twice because I love spending my money. Uh, And from born and raised in Seattle, but we lived for eight years in Boston and grew to love that city as I went to school out there and served in ministry out there as well. And the past 10 years, um, I've been with Canyon Creek Church in Mill Creek, Washington. And I just knew God has, from the beginning, I have been on this journey where I thought, hey, I've wanted to lead a church, but it was never right. And when I started at um, Canyon Creek Church, it was with my brother-in-law, my younger brother-in-law my wife's brother, and I knew God wanted to teach me something about submitting to somebody so that I would learn, you only learn to lead when you learn to serve, and that I would faithfully come alongside Brandon and help him execute that mission. And I kept thinking, now, Lord, now, Lord, and he kept saying, no, not yet, no, not yet, no, not yet, no, not yet. And that will be part of this story today, but I've got to be on the journey with Canyon Creek. I started, we were 200 people in a high school And now we're 1,700 people in eight locations all around that area. And so I've got to be on the exciting journey of God delivering the gospel uh, to Snohomish County. But this long, crazy path that leads me to standing in front of you today, which I started to say when I was writing this message, what a pleasure to be in front of you. And as soon as I wrote that word, it was like I got this conviction from God. This is much more than a pleasure. I think that this is probably the fruit of, of a mutually faithful journey, that God's had me on a journey, and God's had you on a journey, and that's the reason that we're together this morning. I said, it feels orchestrated, and the funny thing about God's orchestration is you never see it in advance, right? You only see it in reverse, and you can see, oh, I had to do that, oh, and then that, which I thought was an abysmal failure, was actually a part of this thing, and when you look backwards, you can see all the ways that He ties those things together. And like I said, from my vantage point, it seems that way. And to illustrate my point, God, again, I sat down to write another message, and God dropped the book of Ruth into my heart right away. I'm like, Ruth, really? Okay, let's see where that goes. 
And as soon as I started writing, I knew exactly that this was a message for me and for you about the way God works in our life and orchestrates things. If you haven't read Ruth, it's a tiny little book in the Bible. It's only four chapters. You can read it in just a few minutes, which let me encourage you to do that when we're done with this today. I'm not going to like unpack all of Ruth. I'm going to bring you up to speed on the story and just enough information to be dangerous, but you would need to go home and read it after that to get the full story. Ruth is this little delightful break that comes after the much larger and more substantially grim book of Judges. So if you're not familiar with your Bible, if you're relatively new, it's about a quarter of an inch on the way in from the left. You'll find the book of Judges. That one's easy. It's big. Uh, And then when you get to the book of Judges, you'll find the book of Ruth. And I want to use it as kind of a launching point for understanding how does God work with us? How does he work with human choice? Uh, And then maybe it tells a little bit, uh, hopefully, about our story too, how we have arrived at this moment uh, this morning. There's a key line uh, in the text in chapter 2, verse 3. Now, like I said, it's a short book. Uh, You can read it really easily. But for Ruth, uh, who is a Moabite, who is connected to a Jewish family through a woman named Naomi, her life takes its most pivotal turn. Her whole trajectory is changed in chapter 2, verse 3. And we're going to use it as a launch point this morning. It says something like this, and I'm going to paraphrase because you might have a different translation, but it says something like, it just so happens that Ruth came to be working in a field that belonged to Boaz. Now, this time when I read it, it just so happens left leapt off the page to me. It just so happens struck me as an awfully casual way to describe the precision orchestration that God had used to bring Ruth to that very moment. I, I almost see God chuckling in that moment. Yeah, it just so happens. That's exactly how I did that. It just... but. But from our perspective, we get a lot of it just so happens. It seems that I've ended up here. But I've ended up here is the recipe or the result of all the contributing factors that put you at just precisely the right place at just precisely the right time in God's will to understand or unpack something that he wanted us to do. And I think the truth of the matter, I love the writer, and I'm going to say it just so happens a lot this morning because, again, it's sort of awfully casual to describe what's going on. I think there's a lot that can be taken out of Ruth, and I won't unpack it all today, but I think that we can say Ruth ended up at just the right place at just the right time with just the right people in just the right circumstances because of at least three profound reasons, and I'm going to take just a moment to unpack those, and then we'll use them for understanding each other a little bit this morning. Um, The first thing that I think you have to recognize when you read the book of Ruth, and please let me encourage you again, go back if you haven't read it, Uh, and read through it again today, the first thing that you're going to notice about Ruth, and probably in your own life, is that God's sovereign will, that is his power to orchestrate everything, is inscrutably good. Now, inscrutable is not a word that you use a lot. (laughs) You're not, unless you're inscrutably, right? (laughs) Typically wouldn't be a word, but I loved it because inscrutable means Uh, Not that it's not logical, but that it's so complicated as to be outside the bounds of your ability to comprehend it. It's something that's taking place where all the contributing factors are so much that you couldn't unpack exactly how it goes. And I think about when we talk about the will of God, both of those words are necessary. God's will is good, and it is frequently inscrutable. 
like you were not able to see. You could not have planned in advance. You know, anytime you set out to plan your life in advance is usually precisely when God deorchestrates that plan for you. Uh, Hardly anybody's like, you know, at six goes, I know exactly what I'm going to do and does that. Usually if I plan out the month in advance, God takes great humor in changing those plans for me. And I just think that that's, we learn about his inscrutable will when we look at the world because he is constantly achieving precisely what he wants to in your life and my life and in the world through our gazillions of free will choices. I would just think about the sovereignty of God that takes all of the choices that billions of humans make every day that add up to gazillions, literally, of free will choices where he still exercises his perfect and complete will. What comes to pass is exactly what he planned to come to pass. But he does it through the inscrutable mechanism of our choices. So that, again, like I said, often you're going to look backwards and see, oh, I see how he did this, and I met that person, and I did that, and I had to go there and down that path and around this way to end up in just that moment. And you'll see that certainly with Ruth, And I think that you may be able to identify it in your own life. And uh, I certainly think it applies to our situation here because it just so happens that Ruth ends up working in the field of Boaz. And it just so happens that we are here together. And I couldn't have planned it. And you couldn't have planned it. And Naomi couldn't have planned it. And Ruth couldn't have planned it. You can't pre-plan these things. The journey with God is walked one step at a time. Not giant revelations of future at a time. God gives you enough to do the next faithful thing. And the accumulation of those faithful steps puts you in the places where God can orchestrate your life, where he can put all the pieces together. But it's that one faithful step at a time journey. Well, let's go back to the story of Ruth for just a moment uh, so that you understand what's going on. This um, happens a thousand years before the time of Jesus in a period called the judges. Uh, if you're already familiar, then you know this is 410 really bad years for Israel. Uh, they're in the process of occupying the promised land. It was won for them by God and the work of Joshua. Joshua gives them the main cities and the areas, but then he says, now you have to go and occupy the gift that I've given you. And there's a whole another sermon right there. Uh, and they struggle to do that. They struggle to drive out the people who are there. They struggle to not syncretize with their practices. And Judges really unpacks these 400 years of mess for them. I don't know if you know about this, but Judges isn't actually organized chronologically. It's organized in a crashing train wreck of things getting worse. And so the author's trying to say it starts bad and it just gets profoundly worse. So that by the time you get to the end of Book of Judges, you're supposed to be like, wow, look what happens to us when we're left to our own. The theme for the book of Judges is in that day there was no king and everybody did what they wanted to. And Judges tries to unpack what happens. Well, Ruth comes right after that. And Ruth is this little pocket of beauty that takes place in the period of Judges. So it says, in the place where people are being broken, there are also these pockets of beauty where people are obeying God, walking faithfully. And you get this little breath after the book of Judges in the book of Ruth. But it should provide for you context that these are dangerous times, people are not behaving honorably, so all the honor that you see in this book is contrary to everything that's happening around them. This is dangerous for Ruth, it's dangerous for Naomi, it's dangerous for Boaz, it's really dangerous for everybody 
who is involved in this story. Um, here's how we end up there. Uh, it comes that in that time, it says in chapter 1, uh, that during the time of Judges, there was a famine in the south, in the region around Benjamin and Judah and Bethlehem. And a man named Elimelech takes his wife Naomi and his two sons, and they take off to Moab to avoid starving to death in that area. It says they go there and Naomi's husband dies and her two sons end up marrying two Moabite women, one named Orpah and one named Ruth. Well, shortly thereafter in this 10-year span, her two sons die as well. And then you've got just Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah. Now, remember, this is the period of the judges, so this is a profoundly dangerous time. Already in the ancient Near East, this would have been dangerous. But particularly during this time, three women without a male provider in the ancient Near East would have been in perilous shape. In fact, between Moab and the state of Israel alone, it is judges and the surrounding territory are full of stories of women being treated with such abysmal disdain uh, that the writer's trying to show you just how bad things have got. You're supposed to know that Naomi and Ruth and Orpah are in trouble. Well, the story comes around that Naomi has heard that after 10 years, uh, the famine has been broken uh, back in Bethlehem. So she is going to go back to Bethlehem, albeit defeated, uh, and at least she'll have somebody who'll take care of her there back in this small town. So she gathers up her daughters-in-law and she says, you two ought to go home and give it another shot. See if you can go back to your families. Maybe you can marry somebody else. And uh, you'll make it work out. Well, what happens is uh, they both say no, and then Orpah says no again, and then she says, yeah, okay, and leaves. Uh, but Ruth will not do that. Uh, and Ruth becomes famous in this story because she will not separate herself from Naomi. And she says rather famously, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, and this is probably like her prime character statement. She says to her, look, where you go, I'm going to go. And where you stay, I will stay. And your God will be my God. Naomi, where you die, I am going to die, and they'll bury me there. May the Lord deal with me, even if it is severely, if anything but death, separates you from me. And I want you to already see the character of Ruth as she makes this declaration for Naomi. And later in the story, you'll see that it is this faithfulness that Boaz, I hate to give the story away for you, but Boaz her, her future husband will most admire about her is this faithfulness to Naomi. So uh, I, I think it's worth also noting uh, that the Hebrew Midrash, which is the story, the writing around the Hebrew Bible, uh, turns this story on its ear a little bit from maybe the way that you see it naturally. Uh, in the book, she's referred to as a young woman several times. Uh, the Midrash makes it pretty clear she was about 40 at this time when she married Boaz. Uh, and so in ancient Near East culture, she's actually getting beyond her prime for getting married and having children. And she is young in contrast to Boaz, who's 80. And all the kids were like, oh, what's up, right? <laughs> Stay with the story, right? And so uh, also is clear from the Midrash that it's likely that she did not come from a poor family, but a royal Moabite family. Her and Orpah maybe have even were sisters. And so her declaration to stay with Naomi isn't just because I have nowhere else to go, 
but it's quite likely she could have got home, could have got married, and would have been taken care of. Instead, I think there's a real tenderness in her saying to Naomi, I choose you even though I have somewhere else to go. I choose you and your God and our future together. And that is part of this character statement for who Ruth is. And that is how it just so happens that they arrive in that moment. So they head back to Bethlehem. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 19 says they caused quite a stir. Imagine her coming back into this town, no husband, no sons. She's got a single Moabite woman in tow, and this is a small town, so they cause a stir, and uh, people start telling the story about Ruth and Naomi. Uh, Here's where we glean the second principle that I just want to point out this morning about Ruth. When you read the story, and I hope you hear me say it today, that she keeps arriving at the step-by-step journey in her life because she does not give up. She refuses to quit. Even in difficult circumstances, she keeps saying she will move ahead. Now, the writer of the book wants to point out a contrast for you. And that contrast is that Naomi is a God-fearing Jew. And Naomi gives up. And Ruth the Moabite does not. Uh, when When they come back into town... Uh, everybody's like, oh, Naomi, you're back. Her name means sweet or sweetness or sweet to the taste. And when she gets back into town, she says, don't call me Naomi. You should call me Mara, which means bitter. I mean, not only is she feeling a little bitter, she's gone as far as changing her name to bitter, right? Uh, (laughs) That's when you've taken it next level. And she's like, here it is. God has afflicted me. He's cursed my life. You can't call me sweetness anymore. You have to call me bitter. And I think the writer wants you to see this contrast between a Moabite who is still believing and between this Jewess who has let things down, let her life become bitter. And here again, we see Ruth's character shine through. One of the first scenes that we have is that when they get settled in Bethlehem, they're in the house, and Ruth says, hey, I see that the barley harvest is coming in. I'm going to go out and glean among the harvesters. Pause. Two things. One, gleaning is a legal right in Israel. It is a God-declared biblical mandate that when you harvest, you leave a little on the stock and a little on the ground so that the poor and the foreigner among you may come through the fields and nobody starves to death. Now, look, there has been a famine for 10 years. You've been starving for 10 years. The first barley is coming in. What's the last thing you want to do? Share, right? You're like, no way. Every kernel of that is mine. Next year, I'll share. This year, it's mine. Uh, And so you're not likely to permit gleaners for sure, and you're certainly not going to give any away. And I think, again, inside of Judges, you're going to get a pocket of something different. Well, she says to Naomi, I'm going to go glean. And Naomi, being ever so cheerful, if I may paraphrase again, says something like, whatever. Right? Knock yourself out. Nothing will happen. So, again, it just so happens. She heads out. And she decides to go out into the fields. Uh, When she arrives there, uh, this is when the just so happens begins to develop. And here's what I want to underscore a point. That in that step-by-step journey of faithfulness, all those little choices matter. That there's always kind of, in choices, there's always a couple of paths before you. I think we even had a little, this is the mental image that pops in my head. And that God's faithfulness takes place in our willingness to just take the next step on our faithful journey. And we make mistakes and got to backpedal on our journey sometimes, but we keep making the next step. And I don't know about you, but I've discovered with God, he can help anybody, but he prefers to steer a moving ship, right? 
Uh, it's harder to be helped by God when you have thrown your oars down because in distress or you've burned your sails because you're too sad. Uh, keeping things in motion is exactly when God likes to be the rudder. And I think that's what you see. She had to go out and glean. That was her journey on this path. Because she went out to glean, she found herself at just the right place, at just the right time, with just the right man, so that it can just so happen that God could do something with her. Well, here, uh, what happens is she goes out, you guys, many of you probably know the story, and she's noticed by Boaz, who is returning, and there's a whole bunch of theories about where he's returning from, Uh, and I'm going to get to Boaz in a minute, but he is painted as a good man, and as he comes in, he notices um, Ruth. And uh, I think that he notices her. Surely he tells her later, I noticed you because I heard the story about how faithful you were to your mother-in-law. And his worker said, oh, she's worked hard all day. She's hardly taken a break. I'm sure he admired her character. But there was also a little bit like, yo, who's that? Right? That was his first question. Whose woman is that who is working in the field? And so we see that he's taken notice of her faithfulness and her hard work, but also her beauty uh, right away. Well, what happens, and before we get to Boaz, is he notices her, he begins to take care of her, she earns Boaz's blessing and his provision. Uh, She goes home, not just well-fed, but she goes home with so much food that she can give it to Naomi, and in that way, she even restores Naomi's hope in God, which is ironic, isn't it? So she goes home. Remember, Naomi is like, whatever, take off. She comes back, and she's got all this food. She's like, hey, what happened? And she said, well, I met this guy. He's Boaz. And she's like, Boaz, that's, that's our kinsman redeemer. And she's like, where did you get all this food? He must like you. <laughs> and she said, he sent me home with all this food. And now Naomi, who a minute ago was bitter, she cries out, chapter 2, verse 20, something like this. The Lord bless him, for God has not stopped showing kindness to the living and the dead, for that man Uh, is our close relative and our kinsman redeemer. So on a dime, she's turned from being bitter and God has afflicted her to receiving some provision and now she's praising God and this has happened because of Ruth's faithful work. So in Ruth's part of the journey, her job was to just take one step at a time, to be honorable, to take the next step and to be faithful and she was honored for her faithfulness. But my final point in that story, if God's will is inscrutably good and she only discovered it because she faithfully took one step at a time, is I want you to notice that there was a faithful servant of God already there to receive her. It's interesting. God can bless you any way he wants. He could bless somebody. He could show up in downtown Bellingham, I suppose, and say, I am the Lord God and I bless you. Uh, But he's more likely to use the hands of the faithful who are already there, right? Uh, he uses our hands to do his work. And so for Ruth's story to work out this way, there had to be a faithful one to receive her to become her blessing. And so Boaz was a good man. In fact, the writer's going out of his way to show what a good man Boaz in contrast to the men that have just been described in the book of Judges. Uh, He's described as a good man of wealth, and high standing, and good reputation. Uh, He paints this kind of little charming picture about him right away. It says, when Boaz rides in, he goes to his workers in the field, and instead of yelling at them, you know, work harder, I need my barley, he says, he sees his workers, and he says, bless you, the Lord bless you. And they stop and call back out to him, the Lord bless you too. And you're supposed to see they have this 
friendly relationship, that he's a good employer, that they love working for him, and that they have a good relationship. Boaz is a good man. And when he notices Ruth, um, again, going back to Judges, going back to the season where every man does whatever he wants, uh, going back to an understanding that women would have been at great risk out in the fields, and he makes a point of that later, note that Boaz's first instinct isn't to take advantage of her. But his first instinct is to protect and to help and to guide and to provide for her. And he is a generous, generous man. Now, not only has he clearly let his harvesters know that there should be gleanings, but when he sees Ruth and he takes note of her reputation, and he might be attracted to her as well, when he sees Ruth, he's like, here's what I want you to do. As you go through, I don't want you to do a very good job harvesting. I want you to leave a lot of gleanings. Actually, what I want you to do is just start tearing stalks out of the ground and dropping them behind you so that she can just pick them up completely full. Uh, This is sort of like ancient Near East flirtation, right? Uh, And then he tells them, make sure nobody touches her. When she's thirsty, bring her something to drink. Uh, When it comes around to lunch, uh, he makes her a picnic. This is kind of adorable, right? So he preps some food. He roasts some grain. He's like, hey, why don't you sit down? We can talk for a little bit. Uh, And he just blesses her. He pours out more provision. When she goes back to work, he guarantees she gets more stuff so that when she goes home, uh, she has really got a lot of provision for Naomi. And again, this is why Naomi goes. Not only is he our kinsman redeemer, but let me tell you something, Ruth. I know men. He's interested. No dude cooks the lunch and then sends you home with all of his stuff. He might be keenly interested in becoming your kinsman redeemer. And so that seeing that opportunity, uh, she begins to unpack a plan for Ruth. Now, it's a dangerous plan. It's a morally questionable plan. Uh, but Ruth follows what Naomi says. So here's what Naomi says. Ruth, here's what I want you to do. This man clearly likes you. He's got provisions, and he's our legal kinsman redeemer, which means he is the relative who is called by law to provide for us, save our land, and save our life. So he says, here's what I want you to do tonight. He's going to be working in the field. He's going to work hard. He's going to be tired. Then he and the guys are going to get together. They're going to have a little bit of a barbecue. They're going to drink some beers, and then he's going to go to bed. He says, I want you to take note of where he lies down. Now, I want you to wait until he's had dinner and he's had a few drinks. I also want, yeah, this is a recipe, people. I also think you should take a shower. I think you should put on your best clothes. I think you should put on your very best perfume. I think you should wait until he's had a few drinks, and then it's nighttime, and then I think you should go lie down next to him, and then it says, and uncover his feet. Now, I've heard a few sermons on how uncovering the feet's connected to kinsman redeemer. Uncover his feet is an ancient Near East idiom that means exactly what you think it means. You should like uncover him a little bit and lay there. I don't know how many kids are in here, but she is to make herself available to Boaz. And in fact, she says, when Boaz wakes up and notices that you're there, you do whatever he tells you to do. This is the ancient Near East. It's a man in the period of judges, a man with authority and reputation and a foreigner with nothing. He literally can do whatever he wants and he could have gotten away with it. Ruth follows that plan. She finds him there. He wakes up at midnight and here's how you know he's a good guy. Because if this were college, we'd know how the story ends. But instead, he wakes up and he's like, hello, right? Who are you? And when he finds out it's Ruth, 
is like, I see that you've done me a great kindness. Because you didn't run after the young men. You've come to me as your kinsman redeemer. You saw that I was attracted to you. And this is sweet what you have done. And then instead of taking advantage of her, he says he protects her future. He protects her reputation. And he protects her in that moment. He separates her, puts her back to sleep. And then he hurries away in the morning and makes sure nobody says anything about it. And then he goes right to work on becoming her kinsman redeemer. And I wish we had time to unpack all this because it's a beautiful story about his legal and spiritual obligations, about how he goes about it. It all points to Christ and our relationship with him as a kinsman redeemer, but we'll have to do it another time. Let me just tell you one funny thing about it. Uh, is that Naomi, who's kind of funny, actually, if you consider it in a sort of sarcastic kind of way, uh, when she comes back and she says, hey, how'd it go last night? And Ruth says, well, here's what happened. He woke up and he just sent me home with a ton more food. Uh, And she's like, oh, yeah, he likes you. She says to him, I'll tell you what, don't worry. He won't rest today until he has figured this thing out. And so he goes through all the hoops that he needs to to become her legal and spiritual kinsman redeemer, a bit of a smooth operator, but a real gentleman at the same time. They end up in this wonderful relationship, a pocket of beauty in a period of real difficulty. They become an image of honestness and goodness and marriage and relationship and faithfulness. And as I said at the beginning, they literally lead to Jesus so that she becomes part of the family line. 27 times later, she is the great-grandmother to Jesus. And I got to tell you that this would have been a scandal in the ancient Near East. Uh, When Matthew recorded the genealogy of Jesus, I mean, I bet you people were like, I cannot believe you just threw that grenade in the room. Because not only did he list three women in the lineage of Jesus, but he also chose the three women of the lowest reputation. And to include Ruth the Moabite, as a family member of Jesus, and leave other people out, I'll take that, Rob, is an extraordinary inclusion, and that she became part of his story tells us something about the humor and the timing and the love and the grace and the inclusion of God in his kingdom. (coughs) It's a fantastic story of God's faithfulness, of the persistence of the wayfarer, and the faithfulness of the established. And here's how I'd like to bring it back here this morning. To me standing here and to you sitting there. Because it just so happens that I ended up working in your field today. How could that happen? That I am standing here, I could have never foreseen this. And I bet you could not have foreseen this either. Now I am uneasy comparing myself to Ruth for a whole bunch of reasons right? Uh, But chief among them, I'm not nearly as faithful as she is, and I can't point to God's orchestration that clearly. I'm still seeing things uh, forward, and I'm unpacking his goodwill. But like I said, from my point, it seems that way. And I can say with an unfeigned humility that I relate to her journey, that I have known where I wanted to be, but I have never known how to get there. And I never would have planned the journey that God took me on to get there. It has been inscrutably windy. I have done things I never thought I would have done. I have surrendered things I never thought I would have let go. I've done things that I did not think that I would do. Uh, God has asked me to go when I wanted to stay put, and he's asked me to stay put exactly when I wanted to go. 
But I say again that I have learned over these years, over 20 years, that on the journey to take one step at a time, to trust him and to be faithful, to be happy for where I'm at, and that is how it happens. It just so happens that I would be here. My background and my ministry, my personal history certainly don't qualify me, but God says I will use the weak so that I will be known as strong. I'm grateful to be here. I think God has wound my journey to be standing in front of you. It just so happens that I'm standing at the doorway of a handcrafted opportunity with a group of good people because I've taken that journey one step at a time. I don't know how you feel about God's calendar management. And let me unpack this for a second, but I grew up in a home. That's my dad, Ted, right there. I grew up in a home where he writes down every single date, and I mean every date, what happened. So I'll usually get a text in the morning that says, hey, you know what happened 1,000 years ago? This happened. And 300 years ago, this happened. And then Constantine did this, and that's the day you went to the store, and your grandma did this on that day, and your Aunt Betty, I don't have an Aunt Betty, but you know what I mean, uh, did this. And I get this long because he loves to see the way God orchestrates history. And if you watch all the dates, pretty soon you'll see all these pieces coming together. That kind of irritated me when I was a kid, uh, but now because you become your parent, I do it too. I'm constantly watching dates uh, just to see, can I see God's fingerprints in the way that he orchestrates this thing? And so there's just, there's many examples, but when I started at Canyon Creek, uh, Brandon Beals, the lead pastor there, that's my brother-in-law, my younger brother-in-law my wife's husband. So God wanted to teach me submission, right? And uh, when I joined, Brandon and I were like, hey, do you think you and I can work together? Or do you think we'll tear each other apart? And we thought, oh, let's give it three months and see how, see how it goes. And right after we said that, I said, oh, no, God already put a number in my heart. And he said, me too. And I said, okay, you say it, I'll say it. And we both said, I think it's 10 years. And I will tell you that if this works out with the plan that we have, I will walk out of Canyon Creek 10 years to the day that I started. Um, it just so happens that my wife said she would marry me on June 11th of 1994. I remember the moment it happened. I remember everything about it. I, I'd always thought 11 was my lucky number when I was a kid. So it just popped out. I'm like, oh, look, that happened on the 11th, June 11th. And then my first son, Josiah, who's not here this morning, was born exactly five years and five minutes later on June 11th, 1999. And now here I am standing before you on June 11th, 2017. And if this works, it could just be that my married life, my life as a father, and my life as a lead pastor have all happened on the exact same day. It just so happens. So where's Hillcrest in this parallel story? And I don't want to belabor it, but I do want to say to you that in my mind, you are the faithful Boaz Church that you too have worked hard through a famine, that you have been through real blessings and real difficult times, that you did not abandon the land. How many people fled Bethlehem and Boaz stayed? You did not abandon the mission. You did not abandon the people. You have been generous when you could have been stingy. Your reputation precedes you as a church that cares for this community. I knew about this church long before I knew you because it's a signature Assemblies of God Church in the Pacific Northwest. When they count the anchor churches that hold the AOG together in this area, this church is on that map because it has made such an impact into this community. And so you have the reputation of being faithful and honorable and kind and generous 
you have been a good church. You have been a blessing to your community. You've done good work. And God reminded me of another passage as I started considering this church. And he just kept dropping in my lap and dropping in my lap and dropping in my lap so I could not ignore it. But God said this to Joshua as he was getting ready to cross over into Canaan. He said, I'm sending you somewhere good, and when you get there, you will live in houses that you did not build. And you are going to enjoy the fruit of vineyards that you did not plant. You will take a harvest from a field that you have not worked in. So be thankful, be grateful, and stay close to me. And so should this work out, I know that you have been faithful. I know that I have been faithful on my journey, and it just so happens that we're together this morning. So uh, am I suggesting that we get married and end up producing Jesus? That's weird. I get it. Without stretching the analogy too far, yes, that is precisely what I'm suggesting. I do believe that if God has orchestrated this moment as clearly as it seems so far, then we can stop worrying about what happens next. If he's doing it, then we won't be able to stop it. If he's not doing it, it will dissolve. And if he's doing it, he will do immeasurably more than we have even thought to even ask or imagine. All we have to do is be faithful. You've been faithful. I've been faithful. It could be that we are faithful together, faithful to the past, faithful to tradition, but creating a new trajectory, a new future, something that we all hope for together, that we do, in fact, make more Jesus in this community. A few months ago, Tim preached a message called The Story of Hillcrest. I've listened to it two or three times. And at the end of it, you said, pause. I want you to have, after heard what has happened here, stop and dream about what might be next. The next thing that happens because God is inscrutably good. And this morning, without it sounding too cheesy, I just want to say, I, I pray that God is creating a dream with you. And this morning, I'm just asking you, let me dream with you. Amen? Would you join me in a short prayer? Lord Jesus, it is our joy to surrender these things to you. We trust in your inscrutably good will. We see the way that you have orchestrated our lives, and it gives us the freedom when we understand how good your sovereignty is, and that we only have to take one step at a time. We get to live in the joy of freedom, love, joy, and peace become ours by the Holy Spirit by walking out your path. This morning, we're all together saying, we choose you first. We want to unpack what you're doing. We pray that you would continue to show us. We're glad that it just so happens that we're together with you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for connecting with Hillcrest Chapel. For more info on this and other sermons, go online to hillcrestchapel.com or visit us at 1400 Larrabee Ave in Bellingham, Washington any Sunday morning, 9 or 11 a.m.